Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. All right, I made it up the steps, so check that one off. Um, good, done and done. Um, Justin, you got the laugh track ready to go. I have a couple of notes on my outline where it just says insert joke. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Um, it, it, it's a it's a really appropriate thing that we hear from some of these happenings with the International Mission Board and some of this uncertainty today, because we're going to be talking about a topic that's related not to international missions, but to, um, to planning, um, to, to how we think about tomorrow. So this week, we return to the book of James, and we've been studying this book. If you're new with us today, we've been studying the book of James for a few months as part of our journey through what... Uh, you might call the wisdom literature in the Bible. And when the Bible talks about wisdom, it means something very different from just book knowledge. We've talked about wisdom as a type of trained response to fear God and follow his will. And the books we've already studied include Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Old Testament. And today we continue in the book of James, which is a New Testament letter which has many similarities to those Old Testament wisdom books. Now, in this book, which is essentially a sermon to one of, the, uh, one of the first Christian churches in the world, the author is giving some practical advice for how to live in light of the fact that Christ died on the cross to wash over our sins. And let me, let me put that another way. If you believe that Jesus' death was necessary for us to be in good standing with God, then there are some implications of that. And those implications, how to live with one another, how to communicate with one another, how to get through tough times, etc., those are the things that James is writing about. And in that way, the letter from James to his readers back then, it's as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. Um, Because we need to know how to live in light of the fact that God sent his only son to die for us. Now we're going to, we've got a lot of work to do before we get there, but that's where we're headed. And and more specifically, today, we're going to talk about something that's one of our most basic tendencies. The subject is the future and how we should think about it, right? How, if at all, are we supposed to plan for the future? How should we think about our lives a week or a year or 20 years from now? At some point, we've all speculated about our lives in the future, but what does it look like to have a response that really trusts God when it comes to tomorrow? Now, that's what we're going to uncover today. Um, now, if you found today's passage, which is listed on, on uh, the bulletin, um, if you found today's passage, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. And if you need a Bible, there are some in the aisles. You're welcome to have that one if you don't have a Bible. That's our gift to you this morning. Now, here's a word from the book of James. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, And spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. All right, thanks. You can be seated. 
So, so as I mentioned, James is giving a sermon to an early church, and so his audience is a room full of Christians, and, and that fact largely explains the final verse in today's passage, which otherwise, uh, as you read it, I don't know if you got the same sense for it that I did, um, but it can feel like it comes out of nowhere. Right there you are, we're reading, and we're talking about today and tomorrow and planning, and then right out of, out of nowhere, James is talking about whoever fails to do the wrong... You, you know, whoever fails to do what they know they should be doing is sinning. On, on their first pass through, you may be thinking, okay, where did that come from? How is it tethered? And again, he's looking right at the Christians in the church and reminding them that they know better and they have no excuse. Okay, that's kind of why that last verse is there. And, and one of the nice things about this passage today is that it's parallel in nature. And here's what I mean. In the first few verses, James names some things that we should stop doing, right? Uh, but he doesn't just leave us hanging. He follows up, and he quickly follows up with a few things that we should be doing. First, we're going to take a look at the things that James tells the reader to stop doing. That implies that these were things affecting his original listeners. And I think these are things that continue to affect us all today. I also, before we get real deep in, I want to acknowledge up front um, that there's a good deal of overlap in the concepts as I've outlined them in the bulletin today. And that's okay. That's okay. We're, we're not trying to gain wisdom through a flow chart or a checklist, right? What we're trying to gain is an orientation towards trusting God. So I'm going to try to keep the points from bleeding into one another, uh, but you've been warned. All right, so let's jump in. So our first point there is do not trust yourself for tomorrow. In verse 13, James starts out with kind of a vague statement. It's not directed to anyone in particular. You know, uh, sometimes when Paul is writing in some of his letters, he addresses really specific groups. And James doesn't address anybody in particular. And, you know, it's kind of like, hey, you know, use guys. Use guys who are going into such and such a town. You're going to do such and such a place. You're going to do so-and-so a thing. And it's really vague. Um, in fact, though, James kept this language, and he used this language, and he kept it broad because it includes so many of us, right? The specificity might have had the, the, um, the negative effect of some of us shutting it down and tuning it out, right? James keeps this language broad because it affects so many of us. And even if we don't use this specific language, even if we're not the ones who say we're going to go into some town to conduct business, nearly all of us make plans for tomorrow or some other time in the future, right? I also want to note, you see that that word prophet there at the end of the verse? I want to note that in verse 13, James isn't condemning making a prophet or doing well at business. And some people might be tempted to take this verse as the Bible teaching that one economic system is better or worse than another. You could, you could look at verse 13 as kind of a gotcha against capitalism. And if, if you guys know me, you know I couldn't sort of resist in having at least a little paragraph in here about economics, which is something I enjoy. This is not a gotcha against capitalism. And I don't say this because I might happen to be a capitalist. Um, I say that because I think we can get to this broader point about not trusting ourselves through this lens of economic systems. So stick with me for a second. Because both capitalists and communists, if that's your flavor, uh, both need to listen up. Capitalists have this mentality or tend to have this, this bootstraps mentality that you can truly control your own destiny 
through hard work and innovation, right? On the other hand, communist ideology would say that the means of production, you know, businesses, manufacturing, finance, they're so important that we have to have them controlled by the government. Right? Now, again, I apologize for the, for the economic detour, but the point is that both systems discount God's hand in the matter. Both systems assume that they can solve everything, whether it's capitalism on the one hand or communism on the other. Both systems, either the invisible hand or the iron fist, assume that they can manage and control the future. And you can look at countries around the world and know that that's, that doesn't ring true. Right? No system can control the future. That's true for these economic systems, and it's just as true for us. Right? Our own experience shows us that we can't predict or control the future. And this isn't a new problem. Uh, I want you to listen to a parable that Jesus told about this capable young man, right, who thought he had everything figured out. This is a parable from, from the book of Luke. It's Luke chapter 12. And he told them a parable, he being Jesus. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. It's kind of a first world problem. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have, have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Okay, so this guy, to recap, he's a rich landowner, right? He thinks he's got the world on a string. Based on his abilities, he's got plans to relax for years into the future. And then God says to him, in no uncertain terms, fool, you are going to die this very night. And then what about your planning? Then what about your ability? What good will it do you then? James would have known about this parable of Jesus. And he's reminding us that our abilities, even if they're great, can't guarantee anything tomorrow. The point is, do not trust yourself to have the ability to order the rest of your future. Uh, I want to take a, a, a quick aside Because I know that there are times when we've felt, and when I've felt, and some of you may be there right now. um, There have been times when I felt that I I did control my own destiny, but frankly, not for the good, but for the bad. That everything I did resulted in something negative happening. And if that's you, if that's where you are, the same word from James applies. Your abilities or your inabilities, what you might feel like are your shortcomings, cannot guarantee tomorrow. Do not trust yourself to order the rest of your life. So then we get to, to this next point. Do not trust tomorrow for yourself. Now, I want to I note that James isn't talking about future in what you might call an, an eschatological sense. And, right, what is an eschatological sense? Um, so eschatology is the study of, of final destiny of the human soul. James isn't talking about uh, looking forward to the future that we'll have after death. 
He's talking about giving ourselves or not giving ourselves over to our plans. So where is this in the text? So take a look at verse 13 again. See that phrase, today or tomorrow? James's listeners assume that they're going to wake up in the morning and they're just going to do their thing, right? They think about tomorrow as something they're entitled to. And I think we do the same thing. I think we put a whole lot of stock in our plans for the future. But James is warning us not to trust in these plans because they are a mist. Many versions use the word vapor, and I may go back and forth there. As I see it, this part about not trusting in your plans can play itself out in a number of different ways. I'm going to list two, and I want you to listen closely. See if either one of these resonates with you. First, the first way is that you might be in a position where your planning seems to be paying off. I think, I think this might describe many of us in the room. When you think back on your life, have you mapped it out so well that things just seem to fall into place? Right? Your plans and your hard work seem to be bearing fruit. I think this describes many of us. Many of you are currently in the midst of really intense studies or fellowships. You've taken tests to get where you are today. As I understand it, unless something has changed recently, you can't get into Belmont and MTSU and Vanderbilt just because you have a nice personality. It takes hard work. What about those of you that are deeper in your career? Maybe you've methodically risen to the ranks uh, where you are now. Maybe Maybe you've angled to get to the position that you currently have. And that takes work, and didn't God give you that ability? Can't you just turn right back to James and say, hey, what's so wrong with these plans? You know, they obviously paid off. Friends, if that sounds like you, I want to tell you to hold on loosely. Remember the writer of Ecclesiastes. If you've been attending Trinity uh, for a while now, you may remember some of these sermons. And, and by the way, all of those sermons are online. Specifically, I would point you to uh, the sermons from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where the author talks about all of his great works and the wealth that he's accumulated. He talks about money and power, relationships and land. And in the end, he comes to the conclusion that it's all vanity, meaningless, nothing to be gained from any of it. In fact, he calls it, here's the phrase, a striving after wind, a striving after wind. The point is that even if tomorrow comes and we get everything we want, we still can't escape death. Don't trust tomorrow for yourself. It's a striving after wind. It's a mist. It's a vapor. Now, before I mention the second reason that trusting in our plans is so dangerous, um, I want to I kind of give you a pro tip. This is especially for the men, though not exclusively, so um, men out there, listen up. Um, here's the pro tip. Non-iron shirts, okay? Non-iron shirts. And I'm being serious. This right here, non-iron shirts. Um, for real, they are virtually, virtually life-changing. Um, if you mess around and you have kids, the last thing you have time for in the morning is ironing shirts. Right? That's something that my sweet wife used to do for me before we had kids. She would iron some shirts. That's been a while. Um, you know, but on those occasions when I have to look decent at work, and, and when, that, when that occasion collides with me having enough time to pull out the iron, right, I, I press my shirts in the kitchen in our house. And it's happened enough times now that one of my daughters, Hadassah, 
uh, is typically sitting there at the island, and she's you know eating breakfast while I'm while I'm ironing shirts, and she really gets a kick out of it. She really gets a kick out of it. She wants to see, and her favorite part about it is the steam. Right? She loves the steam. She asked me over and over again to press the button so she can see the steam rise. You, you know, I mean, we've all ironed, right? You press it, and the steam kind of rises. But the thing is, she has to keep asking me to press the button. Because as soon as her eyes focus on the steam in the air, it's gone. Right? I've got to press it again. It's kind of an amazing thing. Right? There's all of this pent-up energy. It's emitted in this dramatic blast, and it seems to carry great force. Without a doubt, it can burn you, and if used appropriately, it can iron your non-iron shirts. But you can't hold on to it. You press the button, and then it's gone. You and me, we are the steam. We are the vapor. James says it. All this energy pent up and spent. But if you could zoom out and you could see the span of eternity, what you would see is trillions of little inconsequential poofs. The steam, friends. But you know what? Maybe you haven't achieved all your goals already. Maybe that first example, you went, ah, that's not really me. Maybe you're not the meticulously organized type A personality. Uh, that's okay. It's okay, non-meticulously organized type A personalities. That's mostly me. Also, there's still a danger. And this one, I think, is more insidious. And it's got the potential to affect us all. This is the second dangerous way to trust in your own plans. Remember the author from Ecclesiastes that I mentioned? The moral of the story isn't just that, uh, that the stuff uh, he accumulated was done in, in vain and in vanity and goes away. The real, danger, the real danger is that he let those things define who he was. He gave himself over to those plans. His identity was wrapped up in what he was going to do and who he was going to be in the future. And that's where I think we get in trouble. We boast in our arrogance of what tomorrow will bring. In verse 16 um, that we've been reading, James is echoing something out of Proverbs. Uh, In the 27th chapter of Proverbs, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. And, and so if you go with me to the text there in James again. James says that we boast in our arrogance. And when I first read this, I wondered about how applicable, applicable um, it is. Because most people I, don't, I know don't seem to immediately fall into this trap. You know. but, but that's the thing with, with sin, right? It's often cloaked in subtlety. So I'll ask you to reflect a minute. What plans do you have? How much stock do you put in those plans? How much value do you put in those plans? I'll I'll try to get to the point of verses 16 and 17 by stating it a little bit differently. We boast or take pride in those things that we can't imagine letting go of because they define our personalities. Try to bring this home a little bit. Are you gifted in in hospitality and party planning? Are you just maintaining a clean house or are you trying to showcase a perfectly run home that shows off your domestic skill? And if you had to move from Nashville and had no one to invite to dinner parties anymore, would you lose purpose? What about saving money? Do you save money because you're prudent? 
Do you save money for retirement because you think you deserve a comfortable future after years of working so hard? Would you be devastated if a major health crisis forced you to wipe out your savings? All that planning, all that penny-pinching, vapor, poof, gone. What about your job? Do you always introduce yourself by what you do? Do you introduce yourself by what you do because of the pride that comes from being a doctor or being a lawyer, a software developer, a musician, somebody in the full-time ministry? Can you imagine your life if you get laid off tomorrow and the title on your business card evaporates? What about plans for your kids? We pour ourselves into our kids. Of course, we love them. But, but do we sometimes think that if we parent just right, we can steer them towards a sinless life that shows off our parenting skills? Your kids, my kids, do you realize that they are vapors? You can try to keep them close, but in the end, you can't control the future. Right? And I don't mean in a, oh, kids grow up so fast kind of way of not controlling the future. I mean, what if the son who's your pride and joy develops a drug addiction in high school and spends the next 10 years in and out of jail? What if, as happened this week in our own community, your middle school daughter gets into an argument with another girl who pulls a gun and shoots her in the stomach and she dies in the ER at Vanderbilt? What if your daughter's a shooter? Here's the point. Even our kids Our kids are like a mist. We have to be ready to let them go because if we let them or any other of our plans define us, we are boasting in tomorrow. So to to put a bow on, on this point, James warns us not to trust in tomorrow because we aren't entitled to it and we can't escape death. And the second part, is that it is sinful arrogance to let our plans for tomorrow define us. We have to be ready to let go. Okay, so what does that look like? What does it look like to let go of things and to trust a God, as I've written in in the outline, to trust God who has proven himself? There's a lot in that statement, so let's, let's unpack it with the time we have left. We also need to know why acknowledging our inability to provide for the future is actually good news. To get to the question of why trusting in God uh, uh, makes sense, we need to know why acknowledging our inability to provide for ourselves is good news. Well, trusting God's sovereignty, trusting his plan, doesn't mean that we fail to make plans. So don't hear that today. Rather, we seek to align our plans with his will. Let me say that again for you folks scribbling down notes. Trusting God doesn't mean we should stop planning. Instead, we should try to align our plans with his will. James starts this section of verses with with the words that we should stop saying. Or he's, yeah, uh, he starts this passage with the words that we should stop saying. But in verse 15, he changes directions and, and lets us know what, We ought to say instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, then I will live and do this or that. But again, what does that look like practically? 
I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a little bit unsatisfying at first um, because the same impulse that we have to plan every step of our day tomorrow leads us, I think, to want a really detailed roadmap for how not to plan, right? We want a plan for how not to plan. That's not going to happen. There's going to be no unplanning today. Um, That's next week. Matt, Matt often talks about wisdom as a sort of muscle memory whereby our reaction is to seek the Lord's will rather than our own. Not a checklist, but something a little more like an instinct to trust God. I want to give two examples of of stepping away from planning and trusting in our own designs. One wrong way, (laughs) one bad way, uh, and one that highlights what I think it looks like when we can say, if the Lord wills from a, a real place of trust. The first example of not, how not to do this, um, unsurprisingly, is from my own life. So between my junior and senior years uh, of college, I was at Belmont, um, I actually spent a good deal of time reading from the book of James. So that fall, I began to get the, get the pressure. This is fall of my senior year. I began to get, get the, the pressure of, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I felt, at the time anyway, that I had two pretty distinct choices. I was either going to go to law school or I was going to go into full-time ministry with this group called Young Life. So, how did I choose? I'd just been reading James. I read James chapter 4, and it said, if the Lord wills. And so, in my 20-year-old wisdom, I was like, all right, if the Lord wills, let's see what happens. Um, so, I signed up to take the, law, the LSAT, which is the, the law school entrance exam, um, and then I didn't study at all. I felt like, well, if the Lord wills, I'm going to knock it out of the park, and then I'm going to go to, uh, you know, to law school. Um, And if the Lord wills and wants me to go into the full-time ministry, then I'll bomb it, easy peasy, and I'll go into ministry. Felt like that was a that was my unplanned. Okay, and so what happened? I scored almost exactly in the middle. I'm talking like the 52nd percentile. I scored almost exactly in the middle. Um, I had to scramble and sign up and take the test again, um, like 45 days later or whatever, the next time I could take it, and I studied, and the rest is history. The point is that James is not saying, not saying, that we should forego all planning um, or that we should stop being stewards of what God has given us, right? Despite what you might think, I'm not just winging this sermon. Um, I did put some effort into planning it. We've got to trust God. We've got to trust him that he gave us these gifts, and we should honor them, right? So what does that look like? So contrast my, my unplanning with a guy I know here in town named Mike. Mike was a successful mortgage broker for 15 years. He had been uh, married that whole time. He and his wife had three daughters. And ever since they had first married, they had dreamed of owning a beach house. Mike and his wife did well financially. Um, They were really, really prudent, never used any credit cards. They saved for the beach house. They found a spot on the coast. And when they were actually under contract with that beach house, through a series of events, they felt the call to adoption they took that pretty significant down payment uh, that was going to go into that beach house and they began the adoption process. And now, in addition to their three daughters, they have two sons 
that they've adopted from West Africa. Mike and his wife were good stewards and they were richly blessed. They had every right in the world's eyes to buy that beach house. But instead, they could say, if the Lord wills it, we're going to do something completely different with what he's given us. And so be it. Forget the beach house, right? At this point, they are so richly blessed, blessed beyond measure. They have a full house, not a beach house. That's a snippet of what I think um, it can look like to heed the call, to heed the Lord's call and do as he wills. But another question still remains. And and this is where we'll, we'll sort of close. Why ought we to say that? And how can we say it? Why ought we to say if the Lord wills and how can we say it? Because God has proven himself. I just talked about what it looks like to say if the Lord wills. But how can we trust that this is the best thing to say? We can trust it because it's a statement that's not built on our own reputation. It's built on the reputation of the only one deserving of that trust. So, you know, church should be a place where there's mutual discipleship and accountability. And so, from the pulpit, I'm going to confess something to you right now. Um, I really like music. and So, yeah, big deal. It's Nashville. Everybody likes music. That's not really a confession. Uh, Here's a confession. I sometimes like country music. Yeah, I know, I know. Prayer, much prayer and grace abounds, we hope. Um, I really sometimes like country music. And um, being who I am, I feel like um, there's really only one country uh, musician that I can relate to. Um, It's Tim McGraw. He lives in Nashville. He's got a blonde wife. We're practically separated at birth. So, so in the past few weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon, though, I, I have kept hearing this Tim McGraw song playing in my head. You guys can probably guess what it is if you're of a certain age it's called, or a certain musical persuasion. It's called Live Like You Were Dying. Right? I'll give you the recap. It's a, a man in his 40s. He gets a medical diagnosis. It causes him to start checking things kind of off his bucket list. He goes skydiving. He goes Rocky Mountain climbing. He goes 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. (laughs) You get the point, right? So I think the song provides a good reminder that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Um, However, before you start reading from the book of McGraw, um, the problem is that it still maintains a focus on self. It's still focused on what we should do with our time and with our ability. So even if that song is stuck in your head now, and I, I greatly apologize for that, um, I don't want you to leave today to live like you were dying. Don't put trust in your ability to do this or that. Don't put trust in the great things you expect to happen in the future. Right? No, we've got to trust in the only one worthy of that trust, the one who's proven himself over and over again. And if you ask this morning, as we've gone through this, if you still ask the very real question, how can I know that God will take care of me in the future? I want you to hear again the word that Matt read from Romans 8 earlier today. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, thank God that we don't have to rely on our own ability and craftiness, right? That we don't have to lean on our own plans and place our identity in things that will evaporate. Don't live like you're dying. Live like you have been saved from death, right? Live like you've been rescued by the God of the universe who did not spare his only son for you. Live like that. Amen? All right, amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we leave here today trusting our future to you who made a way for us to be reconciled. You who did not spare your son, Jesus, but instead took him as a ransom for us. May we conform to your will, not because we know exactly what it will mean for our agenda, but because you are holy and mighty to save. Lord, we pray for new insights into your word. We pray for lives that conform to your will, for an orientation uh, towards trusting in you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can access the throne through Christ your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.